is to worship God is actually to think about what God has said to us. And so one of the most important parts of what we do every single Sunday in a worship service is we look at the words of the Bible and we think about how that is meaningful to our lives, how we apply it to our lives so that we are people who are changed and not just people who have history lessons. And so that's what we're going to do now. We're going to spend a little bit of time looking at God's word and seeing what it has to say for our lives. You know, I was thinking this week, uh, wondering to myself, uh, I have a favorite donut shop, and, and the closest one is Columbus. It's called Duck Donut. And, and I often think to myself, it's usually about the middle of the week, am I willing to drive to Columbus for one of those uh, sunrise bacon donuts? Okay, it's, it's, it's life-changing. And so I always think, is, how far am I willing to travel for Duck Donuts? Okay, we were on vacation a couple weeks ago, and there was a Duck Donuts like five minutes away from our hotel, and I was like, yes, and then we didn't even go. I couldn't believe it. You know, I wonder how far you'd be willing to travel for a great burger uh, or for a great vacation. You know, without maybe even realizing it, the length that we are willing to travel displays a value on the object or whom we are traveling for. Okay, so earlier this week, I did drive to Columbus for a special Christmas gift for one of my kids because I love them. The question for us today, though, is uh, what level of travel, wh what length will we go to to get to know King Jesus and to worship King Jesus? And, and what does that say about Jesus in our lives? And so that's what we want to look at together this morning. And so if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it to the very first book of the New Testament, the, the Gospel of Matthew. And if you don't have a Bible, that's okay, because inside your bulletin, we have our sermon notes, and the sermon passage is right there. And so everything that we're going to be reading and talking about is right there, and you can look right at it with us. And so in the Gospel of Matthew, oftentimes we, we think every single Christmas time, we think about the, the, the birth of Jesus at Christmas time almost as if he's been amputated from the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. And so part of our goal this year is to see how the birth of Jesus connects to the whole, mass, to the whole message of Matthew, not separated or amputated from Matthew itself, but as it equips us as Jesus' disciples to proclaim Jesus the Messiah for our very lives, not just on Sunday mornings. And so the birth of Jesus is important, but its connection to the rest of Jesus' life is essential. So let me pray for us as we get into God's word this morning. Lord, we just ask that by your spirit, through your word, today you would compel us to be people who would go to Jesus and worship him as the king. And so, Lord, would you help us with Matthew chapter 2 in that way? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, one thing that I do every time I travel, whether I drive from Garfield Avenue to Respects in town or anywhere else, is I use my GPS on my phone. I, I'm just afraid I'm going to get lost. Somehow I do every time. And so I like to give a roadmap to everyone, say, hey, here's where we're going today. That if maybe you're not normally listening to sermons on a regular basis or you get really tired of staring at me and you're like, I just need airtime or something, here's what we want you to walk away with so that if, if nothing else, this is the goal of this morning. 
here's what it is. Come to Jesus and worship him because Jesus isn't someone to ignore, but the king who deserves our very lives. That's what we want to walk away with this morning, to come and worship Jesus because Jesus isn't someone to ignore, but the king who deserves our very lives. And so we're going to look at that, ironically, in the very same passage that the children were singing about this morning in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And here's what Matthew writes. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So we want to stop there just for a moment and, and, and think about his star that is being spoken of here. You know, this past summer, I, I traveled out west to speak at a church camp. I drove an hour to Columbus, flew from Columbus to Houston, Houston to Denver, Denver to Casper, and then had a three-hour drive from Casper to the cowboy camp. Okay, so by the time I arrived at this camp, I was ready to not be in a car. I was ready to not see an airplane for a while. Finally, I had arrived. And our passage this morning begins with uh, what, what the passage calls wise men from the east who had traveled, probably from Babylon, having followed these, these constellations that brought them to Jerusalem. And, and last week, as a body, we looked at the events that were leading up to Jesus' birth. And now Matthew, this morning in our passage, tells us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, a, a small city six miles away from Jerusalem. Okay? Six miles away. And we learn that Jesus was born into a context not of Coca-Cola commercials of polar bears or uh, nice, quiet winter wonderlands, but Jesus was born into the days when Herod the Great was king. And we know that just because someone says something doesn't make it true, right? So if I said I was an NBA star, you all would be laughing at me, and rightfully so. Herod was called Herod the Great, but he wasn't that great. He was crafty and cruel, and he was a monarch that, that built big buildings but lost favor with the Jewish people. In fact, Herod the Great was so untrusting of people, uh, he murdered his favorite wife. Uh, he had eight others, I guess. Um, he murdered her mother, two of her brothers, two of her sons, and his eldest son, all because he thought they were going to take his throne. The common saying about Herod was that it was safer to be his pig than his son. Herod was a terrible guy. He was the monarch who shortly before he died, he ordered a large group of prominent citizens to be imprisoned until the day of his death. In fact, the moment of his death. And then he ordered them all to be killed. Uh, because this way, he would guarantee that there would be sorrow and tears at the time of his death. Uh, this is no Coca-Cola commercial. This is dangerous territory to be born and to be recognized as an opposing 
king. In fact, that was the title that these wise men from the east described Jesus as. There, there were a lot of ideas, uh, but little is known about these wise men. Uh, some of the translations of your Bible call them magi, which is just taking the, the Greek word and, and making it into an English one. And so some of, uh, because of what people read in Psalm 72 or Isaiah 49, uh, that speaks about the Messiah, uh, some people think that these wise men were actually kings, though we don't know that for certain. Uh, they were highly respected in their community, probably from Babylon. And so they were probably astro uh, astrologers, believing that there is a secret wisdom in the movement of the stars that would influence the course of human history. And so remember, because of Israel's disobedience in the Old Testament, Israel was exiled. They were taken out of the promised land, and they were taken to Babylon, where these Babylonians had contact with these Jewish exiles and had time to develop this interest of this Jewish Messiah. So hundreds of years later, there's this tradition of their names, but there's no basis in the Bible for whether it's their names at all. Uh, they brought three kinds of gifts, and so it's commonly thought that there were only three wise men or three magi, but, but again, the, the scriptures don't tell us. Uh, but whether there were three or whether there were 13, uh, it doesn't change the meaning of what they did. However many came from the east, they came with questions that it was troubling to Herod the Great and to the rest of the Jewish leaders when these wise men came looking for the news of this newborn king of the Jews. And so they came to Jerusalem because that's where kings are born in palaces. Kings are given pomp and circumstance. So Jerusalem looked like the place to be. How funny that it's actually a foreshadow of among the first people to visit the Messiah, as a child, were Gentiles from the east, not even his own people. What a foreshadow that these wise men from the east recognized Jesus as the king, since that is the very guilty charge that Jesus had against him at his own death. Ultimately, though, the wise men came because they saw what verse 2 says as his star. The star they understood to be a sign from God. There's a prevailing theory that around 7 BC, Jupiter and Venus were believed to have moved together in the sky, being conjoined there. And so whether that convinces you or not, it's worth considering that whatever you think of their astrology, they did end up finding the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one who would come to rescue people from their sins and they came to worship him. They had the least amount of information about the Messiah, but they were the most determined to worship him. Herod had access to the information. He went to the chief priests and to the scribes, the, the leaders of, 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 the, of the Jews who had knowledge of where the Messiah was to be born, but they were troubled, not joyful. Jesus, however, was the object of the wise men's worship. And so we need to hear this morning that we need to come to Jesus and worship him because Jesus isn't someone to ignore, but he is the king who deserves our very lives. Well, let's look at this prophecy about him in verses five and six of our passage. And here's what Matthew writes. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, 
For so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You know, the questions of the wise men did not stump the chief priests and the scribes. The leaders of Israel had the answers. They knew the answers that the wise men were looking for. And their response was to reference back to the prophet Micah. Uh, The chief priests and the scribes knew Micah 5, and that was a reference to the Messiah. And so they told King Herod, he will be born in Bethlehem because here's what Micah 5 says. And so this was also a popular understanding among the people. We, we read in the Gospel of John in chapter 7, they, they say, Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So what we see here is a picture that both the leaders and the common understanding knew that Micah 5 predicted the coming of the Messiah, the ruler who would be born king in Israel. And really, as we know, so much more than the king of Israel. So the prophet Micah wrote like a lawyer in a courtroom. It was a, it's a book displaying Israel's unfaithfulness. And yet in the midst of all of their troubles, Micah foretells this day coming when there would be faithfulness and peace that would come. And so Micah 5.2 is, is actually very hopeful. But it's important for us to recognize that we don't to lose sight of the troubled times out of which those hopeful words come from. It's a disparaging context, much like the context of Jesus, to be born during the reign of Herod the Great. And so Micah 5, which is what's being quoted here in our passage, provides a link to King David, Israel's greatest king, because David was from Bethlehem of Judah. And Bethlehem was a small town located six miles away from Jerusalem, the grand city. And it's interesting that God's choice of Bethlehem instead of Jerusalem was the place to begin the redemptive rescue plan. It it actually reflects God's preference for the lowly and the unassuming instead of the grand and the mighty. Friends, God's wisdom is highlighted when it's not our strength that is highlighted. In God's economy, God's name is to be made great, not our name. And so time and again, God often picks what is small, what is lowly, what no one would assume to be what would carry out his name. God chooses what is small and quiet and out of the way, and he does something there that changes the course of history and eternity. And why does he do it? Because he acts this way so that we can't boast or brag of our own merits or achievements, but only of the glorious mercy of God. So we can't say, well, of course he set his face and favor on Bethlehem. Look at the human glory that Bethlehem has achieved. No. All we can say is, God is wonderfully free. He's not imprisoned by our weakness, and he does nothing in order to attract attention to our accomplishments. He does everything to magnify his glorious mercy. 
Think of King David himself. He was the least of his brothers. Or think of Jacob and Esau in the Old Testament where Jacob was the younger brother. He was a scoundrel and yet he was him who carried the promise of God. The 12 disciples were not the biggest and brightest and best of society. They were not the scribes. They were not the chief priests. They were the common people. Think of Bethlehem, not Jerusalem, where the Messiah would come from. Think of God's own gift of his own son coming to earth not as a conquering king, but as a lowly baby in a manger. And then that this son would die on the cross to save the world. Bethlehem is scarcely even worth recounting among all the tribes of Judah. And yet God chose them to bring his Messiah out of that town. And he did so so that we would immediately think of two people, of David, the king, the greatest king of Israel's history, and the coming son of David, the Messiah. And so the ruler from Bethlehem, it says in our passage, will shepherd God's people. How important that is when Jesus refers himself as the good shepherd, just like our scripture reading said in John chapter 10. It's actually the promise of God himself in Ezekiel 34 when he sees the rulers of Israel acting like a bunch of punks and he's like, they're like, we're going to feed ourselves. We're not going to feed the sheep. And God's like, you are to feed my people, not scatter them. And so God says, I will become the good shepherd to my sheep. I will gather them from where they've been scattered. So, so this prophecy of Jesus being born in Bethlehem has God's handprint all over it that this is a rescue plan from God for us. And so we're to come to Jesus and worship him because Jesus isn't someone to ignore. He's the king who deserves our very lives. Well, let's look at the rest of our passage together, verses 7 through 12. Here's what Matthew writes. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And when he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Well, we have seen his star. We have seen his prophecy. Let's look at what we should look at called our response. Herod shared his information with these wise men, with the magi, and now everyone had the same working knowledge. Herod knew, the scribes and the, and the chief priests knew, and now these wise men knew. 
The chief priests knew the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one, was to be born in Bethlehem. They told Herod so that he knew what they knew. And so everyone had this working knowledge of the same information. But notice that not everyone responded the same way. Herod's response. He sent others so that he could oppose Jesus. In fact, if we were to keep reading our passage that we're going to do next week, we're going to see that Herod had decided that if he was unable to find the child and destroy him, that he would end up killing all the male children two years and younger. That's what verse 16 will show us next week. So Herod sent the Magi to Bethlehem with instruction to search out for the child and to report back to him. Allegedly, it was so he could also go and worship him. Said no opposing king ever who would willingly give up his throne to an infant. Right? If you guys remember the story of Prince Caspian in C.S. Lewis, Prince Caspian had to flee because his aunt had a baby boy and Caspian was next to be king unless he was dead. So Caspian had to flee for his life because his uncle wanted the throne. Or if you, like me, because you think that all the Lord of the Ring movies are actually Christmas movies and so you've been watching them because it's Christmas season, if you think of the steward of Gondor in the Lord of the Rings, he wasn't even king, and he didn't want to give up the throne to the rightful king. So yeah, Herod the Great wanted to give up his throne and worship this infant. No, no matter your position in life, friends, everyone needs King Jesus. You know, I remember living in Vail, Colorado, and I was sharing the gospel with this multimillionaire. His house in Vail was his fifth house. He was in it two weeks out of the year at most, and it seemed like he wanted for nothing. And he looked at me and he said, Brian, look at all that I have. Why do I need a savior? But we hear the warning that it doesn't matter what we gain in this life materially if we then forfeit our souls. It doesn't matter how rich or what position we have in life. Everyone needs King Jesus. We cannot send others to search out what we each individually need. Every person who would admit that they're not perfect, that we've made mistakes, who we have rebelled against God, therefore needs King Jesus, who, as we saw last week, would save us from our sins. So friends, do not think that your position in this life eliminates your need to come to King Jesus. No matter your age, no matter your position in life, don't send others to seek out what you and I personally need. Because there is no lasting king other than King Jesus. You can serve money, but it's a terrible taskmaster. Your bank account will never have enough. Power or position are the same way. They make terrible masters. But Jesus, the true king, instead of adding to your burdens, actually says, come to me all who are overly burdened, and I will give you rest. So what do the priorities in your life reflect about what you serve? There is no better king to serve than King Jesus. 
Let us take this picture of the Magi and come and worship him. Look at the Magi's response here. While Herod the Great opposed the king, uh, these wise men were seeking the king. Herod summoned the wise men secretly and then sent them to Bethlehem to find the Christ. And their response to having the knowledge about the Messiah in verse 9 of our passage, they went to go find the Messiah. You know, earlier this year, my kids made a map that they wanted me to follow. I tried walking around my house, inside, outside, trying to figure out what these weirdly drawn objects were. And I finally, I said to them, I cannot figure out what this is in our backyard. And they laughed. They're like, that's not a map of our backyard. We just made it up. And I was like, I'm not going to find this treasure to save my life because I was following a map of a place that didn't exist. Thankfully, God's not like that one bit. The Magi went six miles to Bethlehem and behold, the star that they saw earlier went before them until it led them to the right house. They recognized the star. They rejoiced. It led them to the right house and they saw the sign, his star, verse 10 says. And so when they found the house, they found Jesus, the child with his mother, Mary. And then in verse 11, they worshiped him. You know, it's worth noting that despite how cute um, our preschoolers were, that, that maybe that message uh, in terms of who's all there at the manger uh, might be a little bit uh, timely, off-wise a little bit. The traditional nativity manger scenes that have shepherds and wise men uh, don't seem to match what the scriptures say. Since the, the wise men arrived much later, up to two years later, And so time had passed since the earlier visit from the shepherds on the night that Jesus was born. The shepherds found the babe lying in the manger, but the wise men went to Jesus after his family had moved into a house, our passage says. They worshiped Jesus. Uh, The the word for Jesus is a child here, so not even an infant, okay, if, if that's helpful for us. And it's notable that the first ones to understand and take action were these dignitaries from a foreign land. Not Herod, who could easily search out Jesus. And so they opened up their treasure chests, and they laid before Jesus their gifts. Gold, the the medal of kings, which they gave to Jesus. Frankincense, a type of incense, a sweet-smelling gum that was imported from Arabia. A myrrh used by priests in the temple worship and also to embalm bodies for the dead. Uh, They were showing their loyalty. And so then the wise men decided not to obey Herod, but listened to the dream to go home another way. Friends, we need to see this morning the call for us to worship Jesus with our treasures. We don't have to make a trip to Bethlehem in order to know Jesus. We don't have to travel for an extended length of time to find the answers to our questions about who is the king. God, in his kindness, has given us his word. And from God's word, we learn that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. And so we're called to worship Jesus. Remember, Jesus, who is God with us, He is Emmanuel, the one who has come to save us, and he deserves our worship. 
So Jesus is not just simply our homeboy, okay? Jesus is not someone that we kick it with. He is God with us, who deserves not a smile emoji and a text message, but the treasure of our very lives. So what in your life do you give to Jesus? You know, I think that what we are willing to give to him is a reflection of our value of him. One of the greatest strengths as a church that we can do is we can be people who help one another be like the Magi, who go and worship Jesus and help one another not to be like Herod, who sends others but doesn't go themselves. There's great joy in giving back to God some of what he has already given to us in a way that shows his greatness in our lives. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, man, this, this pastor's hitting it hard. I came for my, my preschool presentation. Uh, maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. What a joy to have you this morning. Honestly, it is, a, it's a, it is an honor for you to be here with us this morning. I wonder, what do your priorities reveal about what you value most? The difference between Jesus and worshiping anything else is that everything else is a terrible taskmaster. The incredible part of Jesus is not only that he is God in the flesh, that he is Emmanuel, he is God with us, but Jesus has then rescued the lost by dying on the cross in order to save us. And then Jesus defeated the grave, like he said he would. And he calls us to turn from the sin and rebellion in our lives and follow him. But he doesn't tell us to make ourselves great in order to come to him. Jesus stepped down from the glories of heaven to be with us, to be in the chaos of life with us, to be in a fallen world with us, in order to save us. And he calls us to himself. If you're not a Christian here this morning, won't you come to him today? Won't you turn from these things that will never satisfy and come and worship the King Jesus, the only one who will ever satisfy your deepest longings in your life? But those two aren't the only two responses that we see in our passage. Look at the Jewish leader's response in our passage. If you're looking, actually, there isn't one, is there? If the Magi were seeking the king, if Herod the Great was opposing the king, the Jewish religious leaders were ignoring the king. Our passage ends with the response from the Magi who worshipped Jesus and then returned home. I think it's interesting that the Jewish religious leaders made no attempt to follow on the possibility that this baby born might be the long-awaited Messiah. All this time, the Jewish religious leaders knew from their own scriptures where the Messiah would be born. But not even the visit from these foreign dignitaries interests them enough to travel even six miles to Bethlehem in order to find if there was any truth in that report. Later, Jesus would say in John 9, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. You know, it was enough to frighten 
the men of, of Israel when these men of the east came searching for the Messiah, but it just wasn't enough for them to seek out the truth. I think this morning we need to hear the warning to beware of dull hearts towards Jesus. The priests, the chief priests quoted Micah 5, but they didn't obey it. They were six miles away, but they didn't go and see him. However, the Gentile astrologers traveled for a long distance. Nothing would stop them. You know, there are many who have heard about Jesus. There's many in our community who celebrate Christmas every year. They have Christmas trees up in their houses. They have angels on top of the tree. Maybe they have a star, but they don't display real faith because their hearts have become dull towards Jesus and the truth of him. They may have the answers, but they don't act upon it. Friends, we need to know that our lives before God will not be judged by what we intended to do but what we have done. And so to know Jesus the Messiah, but for that to have no real effect or meaningful effect in our life is another form of rejection of Jesus, just like the scribes and the chief priests. So how, how do we warm our hearts towards Jesus? Well, I think that's actually tied to living out the Christian life in community not isolated, where, where in community we can be spurred on to gospel living, where, where the community together can remind one another of the wondrous love of God, where we can support one another even in great difficult times and then continue on in the faith. God has given his people, other Christians, to make sure that our hearts don't grow dull. That's why it says in Hebrews 3, to exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I think the very way to keep our hearts from being dull towards Jesus, to keep us from knowing the truth and being able to quote Micah 5 or be able to quote John 3.16 or be, to be able to quote any other Bible verse that we may have known and fail to live it out, I think it actually comes with Christian community to help one another live out not in word only but with our very lives, the greatness of King Jesus. So come and come to Jesus and worship him. Because Jesus is not someone to ignore. He is the king who deserves our very lives. You know, our travel doesn't say everything about what we value. But often it does reveal priorities in our hearts, doesn't it? Maybe this Christmas might be the first one in a long time where we say, Jesus really is going to be the priority for my life. He really is going to be who I worship and he is going to be the priority of how my family is going to shape our lives together. If that's something that you'd ever want to know more about, what does it look like to lead our family in a way that makes King Jesus the hero of our lives? Come find me afterward. I'd love to talk to you more about that. But let us come in to Jesus and worship him because Jesus is not someone to ignore. He is the king who deserves everything we have. 
you know, one of the things that we do here at Friendship Baptist Church is that we want to avoid from being people who hear the word but never act upon it. Because we think that there's a warning that hearing only and not living it out is a way of deceiving ourselves. And so what we want to do actually right now is we want to spend some time reflecting individually, what does it look like for me to follow King Jesus today? So we're going to give you a time to do that. You, know what, you can come up to the front if you'd like. You can stay right where you are, but we're all called to hear God's word and then act upon it. So let's spend a few moments asking God, what does it look like for me to respond to his word? And then the praise team will lead us in another song. We'll have a great cookie reception and all that good stuff. But let us spend a couple moments responding to God today. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. That, that is a great reminder for us to not be people who know the truth and never act upon it, but to be people who, when we have received the good news, give our very lives to it. Lord, help us to be more like these wise men from the East who had the smallest amount of knowledge and yet nothing could stop them from coming to Jesus to worship him. God, thank you that Jesus is not just some baby, but that he is Messiah, God in the flesh, who came to rescue us and save us from our sins. Lord, may we never grow tired of thinking about that. May we never grow dull in realizing the great mercy that you have given us in King Jesus, that we might live for you, that, that our lives would be compelling witnesses of this great salvation that has come to us. Lord, would you do that good work in us? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.